How can we design spaces that make us measurably healthier, happier, and more productive? Join us on Built for Health, where we talk with public health professionals, researchers, and AEC practitioners on the latest knowledge and strategies to design, build, and operate healthier buildings. I'm Flavia Gray. I'm a Schneider Fellow at USGBC, and I'll be your host on Built for Health, brought to you by USGBC. Hello, and welcome to the Built for Health podcast. In today's episode, we talk about accessibility with Luis Quintana, founder of Todo Accessible, and Peter Stratton, Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Accessibility Services at Stephen Winter & Associates. They will tell us about their professional journeys, how accessible design affects universal health and well-being, issues to be aware of, and the best strategies to address them. Enjoy our conversation and stick around to the end of the podcast where we share resources and educational opportunities on this subject. Season two of Built for Health is made possible by Kaiser Permanente. Together, we thrive. My name is Peter Stratton. I'm the Managing Director of Accessibility Services at Stephen Winter Associates. I've been here now roughly about going on 27 years, um, so it's been a long time. Early on in my career, I suppose I first started to get my uh, sort of dip my toe into the accessibility world way back when, when HUD started doing some of its initial research on universal design. At that time, we had the Fair Housing Amendments Act of, of 1988, and sort of the compliance world started to happen. We started to get the, the, the Fair Housing Act design manual. We started to learn what the design and construction requirements are in terms of meeting compliance with federal law. So while that was happening, HUD was also doing some research in, in universal design. And I started to get involved, and Stephen Warner Associates sort of got a number of research projects under contract to HUD's Office of Policy Development and Research and Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, doing some universal design, incorporating universal design in single-family homes. And we did some published research, which is still available out there. We then started to move into research that was more compliance-related, more about assessing conformance with the design and construction requirements of the Fair Housing Amendments Act. That published research um, eventually led to more work in the compliance arena. At that time, also, the sort of the country was becoming very litigious in the way of seeking out developers, architects, builders, who were not meeting the design and construction requirements of the Fair Housing Amendments Act at that time. And we started to then move from early research into sort of litigation. Eventually, I started to develop a practice around accessibility and started to build a team here at Stephen Winter Associates. And we began consulting with architects and developers on design and construction requirements of federal, state, local law, and building codes. Sort of made sense for us as a firm to develop that line of business. We were at the time involved or beginning to get involved in green sustainability and energy uh, energy consulting. And so it just seemed like a natural offshoot. And I've been you know, hard at work along with my team and others in the firm here at sort of driving the connections between green sustainability and accessibility because we believe that the building can be sustainable 
unless it is accessible. And we talk, can talk about that a little bit later. Great. Thank you. Um, so, Luis. Well, I'm Luis Quintana. And a little bit over 12 years ago, I had a car accident that I broke my fifth cervical, you know, underneath the neck that left my body quadriplegic. And when I got out of the hospital and I wanted to start doing, well, retake my life, I started noticing the different barriers that existed that don't allow people with a disability to be able to reintegrate completely into their society. So I founded Todo Accessible, that is a company that has people with them without a disability working here. And what we do is we look for the best solutions regarding accessibility. So any place is accessible for everyone. We've been able to take different courses of universal design of accessibility in different parts of the world to understand better what it is that they're doing in different parts and what can work here so when we make a place, we ensure that any person, regardless the limitation that they can have, their age or the language that they speak, are going to be able to move freely. Thank you for sharing your story with us, Luis. Um, and we're curious, what are some of the obstacles that you started finding in the built environment as you started navigating in these new circumstances? Well, the first one was here in Mexico City, Accessibility is a new subject. So people never took it under consideration when they were designing or building. So I think that my first challenge was, how do I get in any place? I leave my house and how do I get into a restaurant? Even in most hospitals, I don't reach in the consulting offices or in the doctor's office or in some elevators. So that was the first challenge. Okay, I'm able to get out of my house, but what happens when I try to go in the place? And then, of course, we have the other different challenges. How do I get into a bathroom? Or how do I, um, I'm going to move from the first floor to the fifth floor if there's no elevator? Or what it was, another big challenge that we have here are beyond the accessibility barriers are the cultural ones that people don't think that the ones that live with a disability can get around and start thinking and doing things by themselves. I've even noticed sometimes that people look at me like he can speak. Well, of course, my limitation is on my legs, not on my head. So there's no problem with us getting by. So those were the two things that I challenge, no? And as you were thinking of Todo Accessible and trying to bring this to other people, who are the customers of Accessible Design? The amazing thing that Universal Design has, it's that it's for everyone, not only for the people that live with a disability. You have as well children that benefit from Universal Design, people that don't have a physical disability, but maybe they're only using crutches because they broke their legs, or elderly people that also use this. So it's not only for the millions of people that live with a disability, but for everyone. And, and maybe this is a, a good point in time to think about addressing maybe the differences between accessible 
design or accessibility and adaptable design and, and universal design. And I think Luis did a great job right there in, in giving us sort of what universal design is about. And I completely agree. When we talk about accessible design and adaptable design, maybe a little bit different. And I think there are probably some interesting differences between all of the terms, what they mean here in the U.S., versus what they mean in Mexico. When we talk about accessible design, or when we, when we use the word accessible, typically we mean that something is designed to incorporate a specific disability at the time of design and construction. And so we have a number of federal, state, local laws, and building codes that require that certain buildings in the U.S. are designed and constructed to incorporate accessibility. They are easily used. The research tells us that if we comply with the standards and the measurements and the standards and the scoping requirements and the laws and the codes, that we can accommodate people with certain disabilities. For example, sometimes we see when we look at design plans that, you know, dotted circle in a bathroom. Well, that dotted circle indicates that there is enough space for most people who use a standard wheelchair to make a complete 360-degree turn. So that is an example of accessible design. When we are in a building and use the common-use toilet, for example, whether it's in a newly constructed restaurant or in a newly constructed building, and we can, the person who uses a wheelchair enters the bathroom, that 60-inch diameter turning circle and plan is really sort of put to the test in reality. Can everyone make a 360-degree turn within the 60-inch diameter turning circle? And the answer is no. There are certain wheelchairs that require a larger turning space. And so the standards are now moving to, to the bigger turning circle. What we previously had was a 60-inch turning circle. And now the research tells us because of the different size chairs that, that some people have, we need that space to be a little bit bigger. So all of that is really in the context of accessible design. How can we make a space usable for people with disabilities? Adaptable design is design that can adapt or change over time and so and based on a need. And so some of the, the laws, codes, and standards contemplate adaptable design. For example, a base cabinet can be designed below a lavatory in a dwelling unit, in some dwelling units, as long as it can be removed easily later on to provide that open space below the lavatory to be used by someone who may need that open space. Um, that is a, a feature that can change over time and is so adaptable. Um, bathroom walls are required to be reinforced for the later installation of grab bars. And so installing grab bars later should someone need grab bars is an, is an example of adaptable design as well. And so adaptable and accessible, we really hear about in the context of compliance. Uh, how do we design a building to comply with the design and construction requirements of a federal, state, local law or building code? Universal design that Luis told us a little bit about uh, sort of goes beyond accommodating people with disabilities and seeks to accommodate everyone, right? Much more inclusive. We do see universal design here 
in the U.S. making its way into the requirements of some jurisdictions around the country, depending on where the money is coming from. If there's some amount of local, federal, or, excuse me, local funding involved in a project, in some jurisdictions in this country, you are required to incorporate some universal design principles, but hasn't yet made its way up to the sort of um, into the standards that are referenced by the codes, by the codes and the laws. Right now, Peter, you said a clue word that was usability. Here in Mexico City, we do have codes and we have regulations, but are not quite, uh, they don't follow what everyone needs. For example, uh, you can put a ramp with a slope of 10% incline, but that is a ramp I'm not going to be able to use because I don't have the strength to go up something that uh, steep, no? So you're in code, you're aligned with the code, yes. Is it usable for everyone? No. Right. So the important thing that accessibility has to have, no matter if, you're, if it's adaptable or if it's universal, it has, to be someone, it has to be something that everyone can use. Like we just said, that's something that goes beyond what a code can stand by or measure. It has to be something that any person can use or get by without any problems because what we look for is that people can get by by themselves without any help. And what I've noticed here, and probably you have as well in the States, is that maybe there is um, an entrance that has stairs or has a nice, fabulous, long ramp. People use the ramp even though they don't have a disability, much more people rather just keep on walking through the ramp than using the stairs. So it's something that works best for everyone. That's right. And not, you know, a ramp wouldn't only accommodate someone who's using a wheelchair or so, who's someone who prefers the ramp, but, you know, a parent using a, a stroller for a child, right? Easier to use the ramp than to get a stroller up, upstairs. Um, someone and a person who may be elderly uh, using a, a shopping carriage, right? Much easier to use the ramp than to get that shopping carriage full of groceries upstairs. So it not only accommodates um, um, different types of people, but it accommodates you know, many different types of needs as well. I was thinking also of emergency situations, no? When you have the MTs show up, they usually have a lot of equipment that they also have to drag, so it also can help in emergency situations. So we've been talking about what universal design is and inclusive design is. What are some of the main principles for our audience? You know, we have architects, we have designers. Um, what are some of the main principles that they should follow when thinking about universal design? Well, if I, if I can start that conversation and then we can volley it back and forth, Luis, if that works for you. Um, you know, we talk about in, in, the principles of universal design and, you know, technically speaking, there are seven universal design principles. And we talk about the seven which are equitable use, flexibility in use, simple and intuitive, perceptible information, tolerance for error, low physical effort, and size and space for approach and use. Now, the seven principles of universal design, which I just listed uh, was sort of uh, the original universal design thinking, but a more updated, sort of more current thinking is out of the Center for Inclusive Design and Environmental Access at SUNY Buffalo. And we are 
moving from the seven principles to now eight goals of universal design. And I think what, what's different about the eight goals, um, what's different between the goals and the principles is that the goals now bring in sort of health and wellness, which is a different aspect of universal design now and the more current thinking. And so we at Stephen Winter Associates like to think more about universal design in the context of the eight goals, which is accommodating a wide range of body sizes and abilities, keeping demands with desirable limits of body function, ensuring critical information for use is easily perceived, making methods of operation and use intuitive and clear, contributing to health promotion, avoidance of disease and prevention of injury, treating all groups with dignity and respect, incorporating opportunities for choice and the expression of individual preferences, and cultural appropriateness, which is respecting and reinforcing cultural values in the social, economic, and environmental context of any design project. And so when we, when we think of universal design goals and what they really mean, if I can just give you a sort of flavor for what we're talking about when we think about the goals, we're thinking about, for example, in, in let's say, home environment, um, contrasting colors to promote good perception of edges and boundaries. So you think about a kitchen that someone is, is um, using, and you have a all-white kitchen. Well, someone with low vision doesn't work very well in a kitchen that is all white, for example. But that all white kitchen, when we incorporate some of the goals of universal design into that kitchen, we wanna think about how do we design that kitchen to provide maybe a contrasting countertop edge so we can perceive the edge of the countertop when we might be at a point in our lives when our vision is not the way it, it used to be. Um, how about the floor where the, 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 the edges of the base cabinet runs. If you have a white floor and a white base cabinet, difficult to perceive. But now sort of design a contrasting edge at the floor and now you have a clear perception of where the, where the base cabinets begin. And so thinking about non-glare surfaces, you know, high glare granite surfaces sometimes are difficult for people that have low vision. And so we wanna think about reducing that glare Front-loading laundry equipment, much easier to use for many people. Adjustable shelving, whether it's in the bathroom or the kitchen, brings that shelf storage, you know, instead of reaching down into a base cabinet, you've got a slide-out draw, or you can adjust the shelves to make access easier for you. Good lighting, task lighting in areas that need task lighting. And so this is designed that accommodates everyone that doesn't sort of jump out as institutional. And so that those are some of the features that sort of incorporate a large number of people and not only people with disabilities. No, and the other thing that you just said as well, Peter, was that everything has to look the same for everyone. Like it's not correct to make like in the same kitchen, the place where you work and the place where I work. If you apply this universal design, everyone can use the same space. And the interesting thing about uh, thinking of the kitchen is that designers can innovate thinking of the stove. How am I going to make that the lighters on the stove are usable for someone like me that can't move their hands? So it has to be something that I can move without my fingers. Maybe something that I'm only going to have to push. But at the same time, it has to be something secure for kids. So not any kid can go and turn on the stove. So they can be thinking of how to innovate with design, making the place fitted for everyone. 
Right. Because it also has to be safe. Not because you're going to make the stove accessible for me. You're going to leave a space for a kid to get injured or for someone else to misuse the stove. That's right. And these are, you know, the examples that we're talking about are applicable to home design and single family homes, of course, multifamily as well, any place where someone may live. But, you know, the credit, that inclusive design credit is about commercial spaces, at least now, and will eventually move to accommodate, you know, use or, or incorporate universal design in housing. But currently the inclusive design credit now contemplates inclusive design in commercial office spaces. And there's a way to accommodate people all people in commercial office design as well, whether it's uh, counter heights at workstations that are adjustable, quiet areas for people to sort of get away and recover from work demands, height adjustable work surfaces, sound absorbent materials on walls, partitions, um, sort of uh, keep the, the distraction which can cause someone to have anxiety at a minimum. Workstations that accommodate standing, standing and seated positions, task lighting. So all of this is a way to accommodate the greatest number of users. In an and another, um, another wonderful thing is, like you were saying right now about the wellness spaces, that is something that we were not used to having here in Mexico. And now there are a lot of companies that have this room where you can go and relax for five or ten minutes maybe when you need them. And also, we can install other things. So it's not only a wellness room, but it can also be a nursing room. So if a mother needs to breastfeed, she can go into this room as well. Right, so lactation rooms. It, yep, we see a lot of that now. That's right. And it's a good thing because it was something that we did not have in Mexico City. And now it's something that we're bringing in and we're adapting everywhere. And people are getting used to the idea that it is okay to go into one of these rooms. It's okay to use them because we spend more time in the office than in our homes, no? So one of the good things that we have in this room is that we can go and rest for a while when needed, and we can go back into the office and keep on working. That's right. And I, that makes me think also, Luis, that, you know, I think, one of the important things about universal design is, or inclusive design is that it's sort of a process. It's a way of thinking, really. There's, there's no one size fits all when it comes to universal design or inclusive design. And I think that's, that's important. And I think that that's why we really don't have sort of prescriptive standards that we have in the compliance world. It's, it's more performance-based and it depends on the need. Um, so, so the compliance side of things seems to come from a one-size-fits-all perspective. You know, counter height cannot exceed 34 inches. Well, there may be circumstances when I am someone who's right, very, very tall, and 34 inches really doesn't work for me. So to incorporate my needs as a very tall person in a space that also has to meet the needs of someone who may not be so tall is where we get into varying heights on countertops, some high, some low. Luis, you talked about accommodating access for you who may use a wheelchair or who uses a wheelchair and also 
maybe a child working in the kitchen or someone else also in the kitchen. So different needs are being accommodated. When we think about universal design in single family homes, you know, most people want to age in their own home. And so moving out of a home in your later years because the home no longer accommodates your needs is really not where we want to go, right? So the home or the, the person cannot sustain in the home. So we talk about connections between sustainability and accessibility. When a lead rated building does not comply with design and construction requirements or accessible design and construction requirements and then has to be renovated to comply, that is when we think about how energy efficient can the building really be if it has to be redone. How sustainable can it be if it has to be altered? And so that's why to us an accessible building is a building that is not designed and constructed to incorporate compliance um, is not sustainable. Exactly. And I love that you brought up the, the contrast as well between new construction and renovations. For some of these principles, it has to be done right from the start. There's stuff that we cannot work on after the fact. And so as Louise was saying, like having to build a whole new room in the house, as you were saying, Peter, it was like the building was certified, but then they have to come and renovate it. This is a huge investment in time and money, and it's definitely not sustainable. We always talk about the most sustainable building is the building that is not built because then we're not using materials, we're not using energy. So in this case, it would be the design that's done right the first time. <laughs> we don't want to go back. So what are some of the obstacles that both of you have found when trying to apply some of these principles? Luis, why don't we start with you? Well, here, people think that by using or by adapting their places and making them accessible, the cost is going to be very high. Oh, no, it's going to cost me lots of money to make this place accessible. Why? If we're using everything, if we are adapting it since the beginning, it doesn't cost you anything. Sometimes it's even cheaper to make uh, the, the place with accessibility standards so everyone can use them. And I don't know if in the States there is any laws regarding tax returns. Like here in Mexico City, if you're going to adapt the new building and make it accessible, every amount of money you're investing to make that uh, building accessible, you get a deductible from taxes. So when you tell all the companies or people these uh, different benefits, they are more eager or wanting to apply accessibility in the spaces. And another thing is that I think the, they think that accessible means only something for people with a disability. And it's something that you have to mark and it's only benefits for them. But when they see the enormous population that benefits from this and all the other opportunities that they have, they are more open to apply it into their buildings and into their design spaces. That's right. And, you know, my, my world traditionally has been compliance, design and construction, compliance, accessible design, adaptable design. In relatively recent years, we see a huge uptick in seniors projects, right? senior community, senior housing. We see a trend in health, the incorporation of, of health and occupant comfort design and construction. And so 
we know that our population is aging. We see the uptick in senior projects, senior housing projects. We understand the trend moving toward health and wellness. And so all of this really has brought universal design and inclusive design sort of to the forefront. And so we're just really now seeing commercial developers latching on to universal design. Universal design in housing is still a little bit difficult to sell here in the States, although we do see movement. We are really rooted in design and construction compliance and trying to incorporate universal design principles and working with the goals of universal design to the extent that we can. A barrier that we find in the compliance world is the perception that accessibility costs a lot more money. And that is sort of, I think, old thinking. It's, it's, it's passe. We heard that 20 years ago. And I think that when we've come to understand now that when a project is designed with compliance in mind at the onset, there is no additional money. It is, does not cost additional money to comply with accessible design and construction requirements that are out there in, in this country. Taking a, a step further to uh, incorporate universal design, I think there's probably a minimal increase, but again, it's we're talking about design that's performance-based and not prescriptive. So it's a design that changes based on the need, depending on the project. Um, and so to the extent that universal design incorporates increased money, I would say it is probably minimal. And when it comes to accessible design and construction requirements, I think it's zero. Yeah. So what are some of the resources that you want to share with our audience if they want to learn more about universal design, if they want to know more about how to apply some of these principles? Sure. Uh, if I can sort of toot our own horn, we here at Stephen Winter Associates have our own podcast, similar to the uh, podcast that we are doing right now. And our podcast is called Buildings and Beyond. And you can access that podcast on sort of every platform out there, um, but by visiting our website, www.swinterswinter.com, and you can sign up there. Um, I'd also recommend taking a look at the whole building design guide resource, resource page, um, whole building design guide, wbdg.org is a great resource to learn, resource to learn about universal design, adaptable design, accessible design. Um, and I might also recommend visiting the website for the Center for Inclusive Design and Environmental Access, which does a lot of research in universal design uh, and is a great, has a wealth of information. Yeah, on that end, also to let them know that it's an excellent idea to consult universal design specialists like Stephen Winters over there or us here because we can integrate everything into the same space, maximizing the usability of the building or of the space we're doing, ensuring the added value and future marketability of the project. So they can look for different information like the one Peter just gave out but also look for different specialists that can help them in their projects 
so they can ensure that it's going to be usable and comfortable for everyone. Great. Thank you both so much. This has been so enlightening and we have learned so much about these topics. Thank you. On the contrary, thank you. Thank you again to our guests, Luis Quintana, founder of Todo Accessible, and Peter Stratton, Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Accessibility Services at Stephen Winter & Associates. Here at USGBC, we care about the universal health and wellness of all building users, and we believe that green building strategies can help make for a healthier home. For a deeper dive into how green building and accessible design work in tandem, check out LEED's new Inclusive Design Pilot Credit, currently available for residential projects. You can also access the education course using the seven principles of universal design for specifying windows and glass doors on USGBC's education platform. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Built for Health by USGBC. Now we want to hear from you. What was your favorite part of today's episode? What are your best practices and strategies? Share with us on Facebook or Twitter at USGBC. To learn more, visit our website at usgbc.org. Thanks for listening.